Under normal circumstances, today's episode would be a normal brief covering the news from the last 24 hours or so. Unfortunately, due to a series of seriously unfortunate events involving some very sudden hurricane force winds and a 110-foot oak tree, things are going to be a little bit different today. Our team is quite small. There are three of us working full-time to bring you the news from Ukraine and an incredible research assistant. Thank you, Grumpy. So when one of us is out of commission whilst removing nearly 2,000 pounds of the great outdoors from their roof, things tend to fall a little behind. In lieu of the news, we'd like to share with you an interview I did with a Ukrainian soldier last fall. Tork is an active-duty soldier and our channel's favorite military man with Azov Brigade, at the time of this interview called Azov Regiment. He was born and raised in Mariupol and participated in the defense of the city and Azovstal. Tork was in Russian captivity from mid-May until mid-June 2022, returning to Ukraine in a prisoner of war exchange. The following interview was conducted in October 2022, four months after his release. You can watch the video of the interview as well as the two following interviews on our YouTube channel, linked in the description. from who you are, how old are you, and where are you from? I'm 27. I was born in Mariupol, raised in Mariupol, and lived there the whole time. Um, I started serving in my city, too. Uh, Azov is the battalion. Formed on the territory of Priazovia, and yeah, that's where I started serving. There wasn't really an alternative when it came to choosing the subdivision, because we only have a few subdivisions as developed as Azov. Therefore, I didn't hesitate and went straight there. Got it. Um, okay, so why did you decide to serve? How old were you? And what um, prompted you to... Uh... Yeah, understood. I wanted to provide justice. I tried the police at first, then understood it's not for me, and realized I should serve. Regular army is super outdated. It would be idiotic. Time wasted for no reason. So, contract service it was. Contract service and all other AFU subdivisions is only now moving on to NATO standards, and that requires time. Ukraine obviously needs time. While Azov was already up to those standards even back then. At the minimum, the process of selection for Azov, what they call the basic scores, all of the traditions for it, all of the combat prep, very closely resembles the Navy BUD scores, the one in the States. You can't quit once you've made it in. You'll be the one to ring the bell if you decide to quit. As in, if you give up and can't handle the pressure, etc. So, that's it. That's all for me. <laughs> I decided to go there, yeah. And how old were you when that happened? Four and a half years ago. Uh, 22, I think? Honestly, I'm so used to this way of living that I don't remember it being any other way anymore. You don't remember life before Azov, huh? So you were 22 years old and you decided to join the regiment. Was it deliberate? As in, did you want to be in the military since you were a kid? No, 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 uh, no. I always liked justice. When the war started, I was a student at the university. And then uh, that winter, uh, I got information that there's another round of recruitment into the Azov battalion coming up. So I decided to try out for it. I waited a few months for the course to start, 
did it for two months and uh, then got into the battalion. What did you study before the war started? I studied law. I actually tried to work in my field. I thought, you know, justice. But you got to be a realist. It's not even about greed, but realism. Working for 2,000 hryvnias a month, at that point, is roughly $100. So, um, I've got parents. My mom and grandma, they both require medical care and financial support. Well, then I want to build a family one day. So basically, you study at a university and end up making pennies. Ukraine really needs to catch up on that regard. Yeah, all countries could stand yeah. catch up there. And so I had to work in other fields. I worked at Kiev Star's IT department, and then I went to serve. So no one scared me into it with draft letters or conscription. It was on my own merit. I was and always am still very physically inclined, so I saw it as sort of a, well, a challenge for my abilities. Challenge, huh? So, roughly speaking, you had two pushes to go into service. One of them was monetary? No, no, no. I was making more than I make right now. I was just giving you an example of what it would be like in the field of law. So, sticking with work through my major made no sense. When I worked at Kiev Star, I loved my salary. In the battalion, however, not so much. I wouldn't say we make some astronomical numbers, just, you know, standard salary, 12,000 hryvnias, it's whatever. For me, it was about the atmosphere. It's not some Soviet army that we're used to seeing in Ukraine, Russia, or somewhere in Belarus. So, this is exactly something I wanted to ask about. Since you mentioned this isn't your regular army, what is Battalion Azov to you? I heard numerous times that Azov guys call each other brothers, so to me it looks like it's not just a place of war. It's family. If a person quits or gets a medical discharge for a wound, they don't just vanish, they still get all the support they need from the battalion itself. Azov is very developed in Ukraine, in all different areas, and therefore it offers a variety of supportive services. No one is going to leave you at a time of hardship, no one is going to leave your family behind, especially if you end up dead. So, when guys pass, the first procedure that's performed is to support their families, and Azov holds their hand through the government bureaucracy, and just supports them overall. Yeah, yeah, Azov is family. I've actually heard this a lot. All the guys in the interviews I've watched speak very fondly of the regiment because it seems like you all don't see it as just work, but rather as brotherhood, where you all like, know each other and hang out. Sure thing. So do you see each other a lot outside of service? Here, I forget the word in Russian, so I use Ukrainian, and I'm literally apologizing to him because I'm mixing up words and I make no sense. Oh, no worries. I combine them too. All good. So, you're a very tight circle then, eh? Intimate, I'd say. In some ways, yes. Because once you're in, uh, your social circle changes a lot. The guys you serve with all day and every day, you also end up seeing on the weekends all day and every day. We're always hanging out together, even with our families. Uh, yeah, it's standard practice for us. It's, um, completely normal. 
because family atmosphere doesn't take away from professionalism and discipline. Discipline, though, is not only supported, uh, but also heavily propagated. It's normal. It should be this way. It's the army, after all, but it's the same army that shows results, which is the most important thing. I mean, yeah, if you're all in a good relationship with each other and you care for each other, it must greatly help you on the battlefield too, as you'll have more willingness to look after each other and help each other, right? Yeah, yeah, because you think about the person next to you first and foremost, and not about yourself. That's the main difference between Azov and everything else. Got it. So, how would you explain to a foreigner what Azov is, why and when it was created, and with what intention? Uh, so it was the year 2014, and uh, it was the imitation of the referendums, and uh, pseudo-separation of territory of a sovereign country, coming from our neighbor. And so volunteers, uh, and by volunteers I mean soccer fans, those same guys that people didn't take seriously, after all, came through. It was the year 2014 in my native city, Mariupol, and all of these referendums were held there, and uh, there were lots of planted people from Russia, some were bought, some young people, uh, young people, for instance, and they were organizing all of these referendums that way. Uh, and so, come May 2014, uh, Azov was founded, and based out of neighboring city, uh, Berdyansk. They started recruiting into the battalion, uh, yeah, at the time it was just a battalion, Azov. It was just a couple of guys, maybe 20, 30 people. And they took back the city, took back Mariupol. At that point, Mariupol became a fort post, super protected. In October, I think October, also in 2014, they needed some official standing. And so it got tied into the National Guard. Uh, the National Guard of Ukraine, and to the Defense Ministry, obviously. And so that is when it officially uh, began its existence. So you're saying that Battalion Azov was formed by guys from a particular city where they grew up and felt no, unsafe? No, no, no. Guys were from all of Ukraine, not necessarily Mariupol. Uh, Mariupol, central Ukraine, western Ukraine, uh, so everywhere. Basically, everybody who cared about the east as a part of Ukraine not a separate territory. And so they organized from pre-established friendly connections with each other, a cooperative effort in training, and came to take back a Ukrainian city. So guys, volunteers who care about their country just prepped by themselves, took up arms, and went on to defend their country? Yeah, at that point in time, we didn't have a strong army, and it was very evident. They weren't able to accomplish the task, so it was done by the guy's bare hands, so to speak. They just came, saw, and took it back. Understood. Now, why Torque? Uh, very simple story from my childhood. It's not at all connected to mythology, as I was asked before, or something else along those lines. Um, when I was a kid, I was at a competition, and I lost consciousness. I got kneed in my jaw, so I knocked out. My trainer ran up to me and started shaking me awake. Uh, so when the lights came back on, I said, that's quite the torque. And after that came lots of variations, but torque stuck. 
So even when I was in Donetsk in captivity, I was being imposed with the rhetoric of drug use connected to this call name. And I told them, what drugs? Guys, obviously, they were telling me it's a swastika, though. There was no dialogue with them. Those are brainwashed people. Oh, yeah. I'm actually going to ask you a couple of questions regarding your tattoos later and what they think Nazi tattoos are. Because I've seen a lot of, um, well, actually, it's quite a story. I was in chat roulette not long ago, and I stumbled upon Wagner. Wagner and Hatke. Two guys about, I don't know, 20 years old, very green, who were super scared and said everything is secret, secret. And I was posing as a clueless American and asking them, oh my gosh, you're at the front lines, you see everything. How lucky am I? Please explain to this dumb American what's happening between these two countries. And they were telling me that they were catching Nazis with Nazi tattoos. And so I asked, what does a Nazi tattoo entail? They were insisting on these Nazi tattoos, and I was like, okay, are those swastikas or something? And they kept saying, well, Nazi symbolics. So I had to ask them what a Nazi symbol in their understanding is. Oh yeah, I can answer these questions very precisely in advance. One, what is a swastika for them? Uh, and Nazi tattoos in general. It's everything they're unfamiliar with. So it could be straight edge movement, it could be ancient Slavic runes. Uh, literally anything they've never seen before. They don't get it? That's it. It's a swastika. So when it comes to guys that have lots of tattoos, uh, most of them were done before 2014. So they've got nothing to do with Azov. Uh, and we're professionals. Ready for everything and full awareness of what might happen to us. We all knew that we have such a neighbor that's going to attack us sooner or later. And it's not some sort of hobby. There's... Uh, there's no division into religion or culture. We have everyone. Guys from <laughs> different nationalities who serve. So it's not even a job. As I said, it's family. And Ukraine as a whole is family. So we have to stick together. Dividing people by their tattoos is kind of, as I said, they asked me, they were picking on some guys who had smiley face tattoos. Like, literally, a guy had a smiley face tattoo, a basic smiley face, and they said, no, it's a Hitler smiley face. It's literally just a regular smiley face. Like the one you would send on your iPhone. You press on a smiley and it gets sent. They don't get it. You why and when you got it then. You say, I don't know, I was bored with my friend. We just got that. It was just a joke. Nothing more, nothing less. They say, no. There is meaning behind it. So, for them, everything has to have a meaning, like a reason behind it. A reason, it. but one that works for them, which is the most important thing here. They're not even trying to make mountains out of molehills, as the saying goes. They're trying to make up something that doesn't exist. I mean, they have a narrative to fill. Tick a box, right? Then wrap it up all together nicely, package it, and send it straight to the Russian people. Yeah, and our task is to not give in to it. Speaking of, so look, a lot of people who support Ukraine still think us over heroes, right? But they have a lot of problematic moments. For instance, there's this rhetoric that Azov are Nazis. Does that make you someone who went through pretty much hell to defend your city and then through Russian captivity and then managed to come back home feel? 
<laughs> Look, Nazis? No. Just no. It's crystal clear here who the real Nazi is. Who came to destroy people left and right? Civilian people. And Mariupol is a prime example. He would come into a random building, take kids out of there, and put them into basements because of constant shelling. Although those kids, mostly disabled, were left behind by doctors who ran away from a burning building. And then the next day, we came back to that basement, and the basement didn't exist anymore. A phosphorus bomb landed on it. So there was no military outpost there or anywhere near there. Strategically, that place would not have worked as an outpost, and any person related to military activities would know that particular spot is in the low ground. It's irrelevant. But no, they just dropped a bomb there and about 200 civilians burned alive just like that. Speaking about Nazism, here is a bright example. Mariupol, where the number of deceased civilians is never going to be known to anyone. So with that, nationalists, sure, sure thing. We love our nation. That in no way means we are going to be destroying other nations. Of course not. We'll see to that. I see a huge gap in understanding the term nationalism versus Nazism, especially in the context of Ukraine. So what is nationalism and love for your country to you, and what is Nazism? Uh, well, Nazism right now is clearly defined by example of our neighbor. Uh, all the actions of our neighbor talking about the Second World War is irrelevant today. Relevant is what's happening today. It's specifically the actions of our neighbor. <laughs> That's what Nazism is. And nationalism, well, I don't even know. Every citizen, yeah, let's say, hmm. <laughs> every, yeah, let's say every citizen of a country loves that country. Let's say a Russian, for example, an average Russian who rallies for not even his government, but his nation state, is a nationalist of their country by definition, right? That's exactly what I was trying to explain in dialogue in captivity but they still take the word nation and twist the ending to Nazism instead of nationalism. It's not like you can love your country. It's not like you can love your people, those close to you. What matters most is that you're a Nazi to them. End of story. Their goal is to feed into propaganda standard stuff. As to the world arena and why people don't understand that Azov aren't Nazis, propaganda was deliberately started from day one and stuck because people weren't introduced to Azov directly, but specifically through the lens of that propaganda. The propaganda from the enemy that at the end of the day attacked its neighbor without any reason under the guise of liberation. Yeah, well, I myself was trying to find the root of the rhetoric about Azov being Nazis, and it all comes back to Donetsk airport and the fact that you were just too strong an opponent. And then I noticed that there is this interesting thing. Slava Ukraini, Slava Nazi. Nazi in English. Oh, oh, yeah, I got it. What happens when you see a guy covered in tattoos? Oh, it's a simple play on words, of course. Who says, Slava Nazi? Now you're an American watching this through the lens of Russian propaganda and you're like, wait, he's standing there saying glory to the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And so the notion of language differences flies out of the window. It's just a play on words. I see we're really not lucky there in some way when it comes to understanding each other. 
So I was doing a kind of an investigation, and I've been trying to figure out where it came from. And I noticed there were a lot of videos online that surprised me. There was a video, I think from New York Times, maybe New York Times? Some really, really big publication that released a video about Azov. And it was, I think, 2015 or 16, and it was about Azov recruitment. It was situated in a kind of setting that looked um, like Kozak Siege. With a bunch of scheduled events, a bunch of people were there to sign up for, I guess, some sort of tryouts. Uh, you know better. Yeah, but that was then, and now it's much more professional than that. For sure, but what it did, it portrayed Azova as some sort of Spartan-style game where guys must, if not kill each other, as initiation. And then with all of the Slava Ukraini saluting, they basically molded it into this picture where, you know, guys have to fight each other in a ring. With torches in the background. And your average Westerner is not going to understand that it was made to look like a Cossack siege, not some sort of a uh, satanic ritual where these guys are supposed to, like, sacrifice each other in order to get the lucky ticket into the battalion. Well, and then they found some dude who came from Sweden, and he's a literal Nazi, who said this looks like the ideal picture of Germany in the 1940s to him, and he really wanted to join, and now he's here and sees it in front of him and loves the atmosphere. And so they took this person, who didn't even make it into Azov, as, look, a Nazi came to Azov. Look, Nazis and torches, what else do you need? Oh yeah, and he made us all blend into him. Yeah, and it was genuinely a huge publication that failed to provide any evidence that this Nazi rhetoric was even coming from Azov themselves, or that Azov has any relation to it. It was just a molded picture. But there were a lot of people who watched it, and it spread far and wide. From there on out, no one was questioning anything. That's precisely why I wanted to find out what nationalism and love for one's country is for you, because you are a direct representative of Azov. I'm going to clearly explain what love for your country is. On February 24th, when rockets started landing, Morning time, 5 a.m. on the dot, uh, lots of guys weren't stationed at the bases at the time. So, potentially, if we take war as an example, any one of those guys could have fled. But no one did. So many guys who had already quit Azov, ended their contract and lived a civilian life, came to Mariupol, a potential encirclement from various cities. They came back. So their family, first and foremost, wouldn't be left stranded. So they came to fight just like we did. Fight with the enemy, and that is pure nationalism. It's not Nazism. You're on your land. You're protecting your birthplace. You're protecting your family. Because you understand that after Mariupol, it'll be Zaporizhia. After Zaporizhia comes everything else. And I think when it comes to Mariupol, we fulfilled our duty. And there are so many examples of guys that come back to Mariupol and stayed there forever. That's it. They died. As in, they came as volunteers. You would think it's 2022, and they're not on a contract anymore. But still, they came back as volunteers, were taken into the regiment, and now, as members of Azov, started fulfilling their combat duty, and then they died. 
Yeah, I mean, Mariupol is, it's, I can't imagine how difficult of a subject it is for you. I'm a person, you know, from Lviv, I've, I've never even been to Mariupol, and for me, watching how it all unfolded during the course of these months, how it started and how it culminated, it's just... Well, um, you need to understand, as someone who's lived in Mariupol my whole life, uh, I can tell you it used to be a very bland, metallurgical city. But since 2018, it started evolving, becoming a full-fledged European city. Many people invested into it, built so many parks, playgrounds, ice skating rinks. So the city as a whole went from gray to colorful, a pleasant place to have an evening walk with your wife or girlfriend. It became really safe. We had CCTV everywhere. It was a rapidly developing city. It had a chance to be evolving for four years. It was just leveled to the ground, and that's it. So, I have a question, and you might not have an answer to it. To be honest, I don't think anyone will, but when Russian forces entered Mariupol in 2014, they thought Mariupol was going to give in. Well, rather not give in, but it'll be just as easy to take as it was Donetsk. But Mariupol held its own, and I know that Mariupol resisted fiercely and succeeded. Do you think it's connected to the fact that they decided to destroy specifically Mariupol? Well, to be fair, I don't really understand why they wanted to destroy it so bad. Well, I mean, genocide, it was factually a genocide of civilian population. Those weren't servicemen. It's obvious in war, military men kill each other. Well, rather, fight the enemy from two opposing sides. But in the case of civilians, all of us were baffled. We didn't understand what was going on. When you see a plane dropping bombs into a nine-story building with no military presence, and those buildings unfold like books, well, why do that? I don't understand. Maybe they were bitter because the city didn't want to change its course, so, so to speak, and it wanted to peacefully remain at home in Ukraine. Maybe that's what they were so angry about, 2014. Maybe they thought it would be an easy one. But we were ready. We have been trained. Everyone had an understanding of what was going to happen. Understood. I gotta backtrack here a little, if you don't mind. When you were talking about nationalism versus Nazism, so for you it seems Nazism is an attack. Well, it's rather an annihilation or a genocide of that nation, yeah. Okay, and nationalism for you is protection? Protection of your nation? No, no, no. It's rather holding your nation dear. Cherishing it. Cherishing in no way means destroying other nations. A bright example of the fight between nationalism and Nazism is the war in Ukraine. That same war started in 2014, but now it's much more pronounced. And for some reason, being called from the other side a special operation. Even though we all see what's happening. Yeah, that's it. I mean, specifically the clash between two terminologies. Well, actually, the term special operation is very funny to me. I went on chat roulette recently and stumbled upon a vivid example of um, the Russian brainwashing. 
of all that Russian propaganda. I asked him why does he think the war started, and he immediately stopped me and said, it's not a war, it's special operation. So I asked him what's the difference between the war and the special operation is. His answer? The war is serious weapons, and special operation is light weapons. So I then wanted to clarify what Russia considers heavy weapons if half the cities in Ukraine are destroyed. To which he said, it's not Ukraine, it's Donbass. Donbass is not Ukraine. Oh yeah, they also like, for some reason, like calling Mariupol Donbass. But it's Priyazovia. The way it works with them is they get a piece of information inserted into their head, and they don't see anything past that. I don't know. I mean, we live in a digital age. Go on YouTube, watch a neutral source. Not necessarily Ukrainian mass media, not Russian mass media. Find some neutral people, watch their videos. Someone who's just showing things, not even necessarily commenting their opinion. Just look at it from a different perspective. But no, we're being told this way is correct. So this way is correct, and that's it. From what I understand, they don't believe in neutral sources. They believe the whole world is against Russia, Russia is innocent and just trying to protect everyone, and it's just trying to help people, and the whole world turn their back on Russia because Russia is hated by America. End of story. Oh, sure. But to help people do what? Not be able to live well? Not to evolve? Well, I didn't say they had logic. I mean, that's the main issue. Uh, Let's backtrack to the general view of Azov. No one ever tried back then, at the time, to talk to Azov directly. The uh, introduction was made through some random sources, some propaganda. So we were found out about through some random imposed opinions, stereotypes and such. Meanwhile, you could have just filmed a bunch of interviews with us or directly through our course prep. You could have watched Azov Media on YouTube and seen how they weed out recruits. There was no discrimination in the selection process. You could have looked at how different courses are built for different subdivisions. You could have seen that it's the epitome of professionalism, of what our Ukrainian army should be like throughout. The armed forces of Ukraine, everyone should reach that standard. So when you invest in a person, when you treat them right and respect them, they give back. We don't have a... I mean, of course, we follow the chain of hierarchy, your commander, the commander of your commander, and so on. Uh, but let's say we walk down the street and you run into the regiment's commander, let's say Ritas. You'll easily greet him with a, hi, buddy, everything's okay, your family. You are part of one whole, you got to stand side by side in battle. We don't have this thing where staff officers stand on the sidelines and never see combat. We're all combat ready. My commander of my division was in combat with me. Unfortunately, he died on the 8th of May because of an airstrike. He was the first to run into battle. Yeah, even if you look at Azov's style, at all those addresses in line, Redis was there, everyone was there, so every person there participated. Even more than that, Redis did direct negotiation. As in, he stepped above ground to face up the opponent towards the end around May, and directly addressed them. He couldn't send just anyone because he understood that no one would be able to insist on certain conditions as much as he could. And conditions there were many and agreed upon. And yet, for some reason, we don't hear anything about how Redis is doing in captivity, how other guys are doing. No info on them, no support from Red Cross, 
That now says they didn't offer to keep an eye on POWs. It's a very floating subject that is astronomically unfathomable to me as someone who was a POW, who was exchanged just like other guys, and who was waiting for the rest of them to be exchanged. What kind of an organization is this that frankly doesn't do anything? What's the point in it then? Well, I'll tell you this as a person who lives in the United States and advocates against them. When I heard in the news that the ICRC and the UN are going to be the organizations to guarantee your security, it was so disappointing. Cross, I don't even know how it was allowed anywhere near you, because it's an organization that has more lawsuits from their donors than anything else. They raise so much money. I mean, millions, maybe billions, for every situation they try to insert themselves into. While they're not an organization that has the capacity to rebuild or an organization that has the capacity to guarantee anyone's security, they're an organization that, frankly, just brings you a blankie, a Sammy, and a torchlight. And that is about all their help. Well, to be honest, I'd be very happy if they'd at least brought me a blankie, a Sammy, and a torchlight. And gave me a chance to call my family. But I haven't seen them once in the month and a half that I was captive. So I don't know. Some claim to have seen them, some claim to have even met them. When I got back onto territory controlled by Ukraine, started doing some research and found out that we were all supposed to fill out some paperwork with the ICRC. How interesting. What paperwork? Red Cross fundraising. I was in what you would call elementary school, and even then, we had fundraising drives, and our parents gave them money. So now I'm wondering, where did it go? Wild guess, pockets of the founders? Yeah, most likely so as an option. The topic of the Red Cross is very relevant. I would really want to start a movement to force them to answer, where does all that money go? They collected millions for Ukraine relief. And what did they do with it? Put up a tent in Belgorod? It's not right, isn't it? (laughs) Not up to code, huh? Yeah, definitely not up to a million dollar code. That's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda, especially when it's about Azov. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And please, consider supporting our work at Patreon. You'll find the links in the description. Our regular brief will be back tomorrow with more updates, bearing another freak weather accident. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Bobachemus!